be here again. I, my daughter is here somewhere, I think. Zoe, are you in here? <laughs> no? She's probably skipping up. Oh, there you are. Good, good to be here with, I don't think Zoe has been able to be with me before, so I'm glad you're here. It was good to get to stay with the Arstads last night. I thought that we might perish together. <laughs> Which, you know, if you have to die, it's not a bad place to die. And I know at least one of my children with me when we were dying. But it's good. Mark and Daniel are always such incredible hosts and, and good friends. Like, uh, he was at my house last weekend and now uh, at his. So it's, it's always good to, to be with them. I want to talk from the gospel text for the day, which is the story of a man who is lame in some way. We don't know exactly what his sickness was, but he was lame in some way. He couldn't get to the pool quickly. He couldn't walk. So he almost certainly is paralyzed from the waist down. That's the most likely scenario, but the text doesn't tell us. But before we talk about the man, I I just want to make sure that we are picturing the scene. One of the things that I think really hurts our reading of scripture is the way that we imagine the scenes to look and feel. And I think most of us have been taught to imagine biblical stories in ways that are safe for primetime television, right? Like that the kids can see. So if you, if if you want to see what I'm talking about, if you go and just Google pool of Bethesda and look at the images that, that show up, you'll, you'll see it is all very neat and clean. But that's not the kind of scene we have here in this text. First of all, when, when, I, when I pictured the text for years before I studied the passage, when I pic- pictured the text, for some reason I pictured a very small pool, like a kiddie pool, and a few sick people kind of sitting around it with their feet in, right? Not necessarily sipping Mai Tais, but not necessarily not sipping Mai Tais, right? Pretty, pretty comfortable. And then Jesus comes up on them and heals the man. And then I studied the text. First of all, the pool here is gigantic. It's hundreds of feet across and more than 100 feet long. It's at least 40 feet deep. And there would have been dozens, at least, at the very least dozens, more than likely hundreds of sick people lying or sitting around this pool. So that when Jesus comes to heal this man, Jesus is having to step over people to get to him. Like these people would have been jammed against one another around this deep pool, which we don't know exactly what it was used for. There, there's, there was long, for a long time, people thought that it was used to wash the bodies of the sheep that were going to be used in the temple, in the sacrificial system which would have made the pool, of course, incredibly nasty and and disease-ridden. Other people think that it was a reservoir and was kept pretty clean. We don't know for sure what what the pool was for. But there are hundreds of people, sick people, gathered around this pool. And we know that at least one of them has been there, not for a year or five or ten, but for 38 years. So for at least a generation... This pool has been a place for the gathering of the sick. 
Now again, when you picture that, you need to picture it in all of its kind of gritty nastiness. Imagine, in the ancient world, hundreds of invalid people around a pool. This man, as I told you already, is almost certainly paralyzed from the waist down, which means he has no control of his bowels. And he has no one to put him into the pool, which almost certainly means he has no one to clean him. And now you're talking about hundreds of people, many of whom will not be able to control their bodies. You're going to have people with seizures. You're going to have people with serious mental illness. You're going to have people who are blind and lame in ways that feel safe to us. But most of these people would have been sick in ways that would not feel safe to us. You know, you've all had that experience when you've walked into a room in a hospital or a wing of a hospital and you've seen people who are really seriously ill and you know the sound of those people, the cries of pain that they're making. And instantly you recognize that's not a normal cry. That's not a kind of, that's not just someone who's in pain. That's, That's something else. You know what it smells like when you've been in a rest home or a a wing of a hospital where people are seriously ill in these ways. Now imagine outside in the heat around this stagnant pool, hundreds of people lying on top of each other and beside each other. For us, the stench would be unbearable. The sound would be unbearable. And this man had been there for 38 years years. Think about that. 38 years. Just this weekend, uh, Danielle was telling Mark and me about how she's going stir crazy because she's been in the house since her surgery. Imagine being beside a pool with other seriously ill people for 40 years. 38 years of sickness. And Jesus walks to this man to heal him. It's it's a strange story and a controversial story in that the man says to Jesus, I have no one to put me in the pool. When the pool is stirred, someone gets there ahead of me. And it seems to be that the, the idea was that this pool of water would occasionally start to stir. And if you could get into the water first, it would heal you. Now, I grew up in Pentecostal churches that loved this text. I mean, they loved this text. And they would use this idea of the water being stirred as a metaphor for the moving of the Spirit. And so they would, they would preach the hound out of this text, right? But we don't actually know that the pool healed anyone. We don't know anything really about the story, about, about the pool in the story. We know this man has, has believed that the first person in the pool will be healed. But the scripture doesn't tell us that people had been healed or that it could only be one person. or We, we don't know, but we know this man is convinced of it and that he can't get there. He can't get to the pool in time. Someone gets there first. And Jesus heals him, which is beautiful and wonderful, and I I want to say a few things about it in a moment, but I want to make sure you're picturing rightly just how chaotic 
and bizarre and disgusting and frightening the scene is. And Jesus walks up, literally has to step over people to get to this man and says to the man, do you want to get well? And the man's response is rather polite given the situation. I think if I'd been sick for 38 years, sick in the way this man was, and then some yokel I don't know at all comes up to me and asks me if I want to get well. I mean, I like to think of myself as partially sanctified, but I'm in, in no way sanctified enough to respond well in this situation. In fact, a lot of ancient Christian readers praise the man for this response, for how controlled his response is in, in, in reaction to Jesus' question. But he says, I have no one to put me in. And Jesus says, stand up, take your mat, and go. And the man is healed. And so much about that that's fascinating. One is, why did Jesus zero in on this man? The text gives us almost no details. It simply says Jesus knew the man had been sick for 38 years, or for a very long time, and went to the man and healed him. That's all, that's all we get. We don't get, a, we don't get any kind of explanation as to what motivated Jesus to heal the man. And strikingly, even though Jesus starts with the question, do you want to get well? The man doesn't actually answer the question, and Jesus doesn't wait for the answer. He just heals him. And this is, this is characteristic of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So very often in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus will heal people and then say to them, your faith has made you whole. This is very typical in the Synoptic Gospels. And usually in the Synoptic Gospels, what you have is someone comes to Jesus for healing. Not always, but usually someone seeks him out for, for healing and then he heals them. And in the Synoptic Gospels, there are healings on a mass scale where many people are healed at once. But in John's gospel, there are relatively few healings. They're almost always at Jesus' initiative, and it has nothing to do with faith. Notice there's no exchange here about the man's faith at all. Jesus asks him a question, the man doesn't answer, then Jesus heals him and sends him away. And there's no talk about the man believing in Jesus or believing that Jesus can heal him or anything like that at all. And part of what's striking is that Jesus does this on the Sabbath day. Jesus had a keen sense of irony. I mean, here's a man who's been lying for 38 years. Now it's the Sabbath day. It's the day on which he's supposed to rest. And Jesus tells him to get up and walk. And the people around Jesus very quickly notice this. Like, why did you heal this man on the Sabbath day? They're not so much scandalized that there is a man who's healed. Sorry. The devil's really fighting us. That's what you say if, if anything goes wrong. I guess it could be God trying to stop us, but I like the first story better. But there's, there's no sense at all that this man believes in Jesus or understands what's going on. In fact, as often happens in the Gospel of John, people ask the man, who healed you? And he's like, I don't know. Some man walked up to me, asked if I wanted to get well, and healed me. I have no idea. And there's this kind of insistence in the Gospel of John that healing and ultimately salvation is about the initiative of God and has very little to do with what we want much less what we believe is possible. We're the ones who are laid out, incapable of response, 
and he acts. He sees us, he comes to us, he raises us up and sends us on our way. And in the history of Christian readings of this text, that's the most common theme, the theme of us in our sickness, spiritually speaking, and God coming to us and saving us in spite of ourselves, whether we like it or not. And I think that's true. I don't, I don't want to dispute that at all. But I, I, I think there's a risk for us to spiritualize the story away. Just like I think we can sanitize the scene and imagine it as much cleaner and neater than it actually would have been, I think it's possible to spiritualize the situation in such a way that we miss the power of what's taking place in this story. And I think the power of what's taking place in this story is what doesn't take place rather than what does take place. It's what's not said and not done that should hit us. And that is Jesus heals one man. I want you to think about it. Again, the picture I had of a few people sitting around a kiddie pool, that's not that scandalous. I mean, they're pretty comfortable anyway. But if you imagine the scene as it must have been with hundreds of people horrifically ill, abandoned by their families, not cared for by any kind of system, just left to die by the pool, to make their own way the best they can. And here is Jesus stepping over the bodies of these people to heal one man who doesn't believe in him, doesn't understand what's taking place, doesn't have any kind of exemplary characteristic or quality. It's, it's, it's disturbing. Especially, again, if you imagine, if you've been in situations where there are people who are, who are very needy, if, you, if they see someone having their needs met, they immediately rush to those people, to the person who's meeting the need. Right? If you've, you know, I can remember times, for instance, in trips that I took to Haiti when there would be someone, some hungry person on the street and you feed them. And as soon as you feed this person, this one hungry person on the street, hundreds of people materialize out of other streets coming to be fed. So when Jesus is healing this man and then walking away, what do you think it sounded like for those hundreds of people who've seen this man and known him for, he's been there as long as any of them have been there almost certainly. They all know him. And now he's walking away. And Jesus is walking away. And they're all crying for Jesus to come and do this for them. And Jesus just walks away. It's interesting that in pre-modern readings of this story, the primary way of reading the text is that this man is a man of incredible patience and courage. And as I told you already, a lot of people, a lot of readers of this text, when they see how he responds to Jesus, they praise him for his wisdom, for the ways in which he responds so kindly to Jesus. But in modern readings of the text, it's just the opposite. Most modern readings of the text, at least that I've found, mock the man for being lazy. That part of, the, and this is what they take from Jesus asking the question, do you want to get well? Reading into the question the assumption that the man was sick because he wanted to be. I think, I think that says a lot, first of all, about how our world has changed, right? In, in the ancient and medieval world, the assumption was if someone's sick that long, they have incredible character because the endurance it takes to stay alive with that kind of illness shapes you into a certain kind of person. 
when we see sickness, when we see prolonged sickness in particular, what we think is they don't want to be well or they would be. I think that's a sickness in us. That we, I, I think my sense is when we hear about prolonged sickness, we have pity. When someone close to us has prolonged sickness, we're disgusted. We're angered because it's incredibly inconvenient. It disrupts our lives in ways you just can't recover from. And in the ancient world, the medieval world, they knew how to live with that because medicine wasn't advanced enough to avoid those problems. We live in a world that's advanced enough to keep us at a safe distance from most of that. That happens in hospitals. That happens in rest homes and nursing homes. That happens in asylums. That happens in other places to other people. Our lives remain neat and clean and orderly. But you can't live the Christian life there. You can't live the Christian life in that neat and clean and orderly world. And you can't forget about those who are forgotten. But in this case, it seems like Jesus has forgotten them. But of course, he hasn't. I, th I think it's, it's important for us to be able and willing to say that it seems like that. I don't think we can be afraid of confronting God with what seems to us like a wrong. Now, ultimately, I don't believe God does any wrong. I believe God's always faithful. He's always good. But there's something wrong with us if we're afraid to say to God, this seems wrong. Oddly enough, faith trusts that God is good and therefore challenges God when it seems that God has not done good. And it's, it's immature faith that's unwilling to say to God, this is wrong. What, what are you doing? And so when, when I read a story like this, that's my first response is, Jesus, what are you doing? Right? You spoke a word and healed a man who had been there for 38 years. He could have easily spoken that same word and everybody at that pool walked away. It would have been incredibly easy. At other times, people that just touched him were healed. And there were, he was certainly being touched by people on all sides at that pool. No one was healed. What are you doing, Jesus? What, what is happening here? But I, think, I think the key is to recognize that Jesus is working in the lives of everyone else at that pool, just not in the same way that he's working in the life of this particular man, this man who's been there for 38 years. Now, part of, I don't want to get into too deep of waters, but part of the, what do we have to see here is that Jesus is not God kind of scaled down to a human consciousness. Jesus is God, the infinite one, embodied, which means that when Jesus is living his life, he's living his life and ruling the, the creation, ruling the universe. He's not scaled down and limited to one brain or one body, but in that body lives the one who is all in all. So he is present to this man, this man who's been sick for 38 years, in one way, a way that man can touch and hear. But he's present in another way to everybody else at that pool. And I think it's absolutely crucial that we remember God doesn't work sometimes and not other times. God is always working. God is always working. And God is always working his will for good in everyone's life. We won't always see it, 
we'll have moments like this where we can see God is doing that. But that doesn't mean that's all that God is doing. When we read this story, we know that God was in Christ raising this man from his sickness. But we don't know what else God was doing in that moment. We have no idea how to get access to what God was doing for everyone else around that pool in that moment. So this, this I think, is absolutely crucial. Just because we can't see that God is working doesn't mean that God isn't working. Right? He is working. And then there are things that we, we think we can see. This is something we think we know that God is doing. But I think it's important to realize that even that is for the sake of those who seem forgotten. That when God seems to remember someone, it's never just about that someone. It's also about everyone else that God seems to forget. Several years ago, I was at a conference, and uh, Preston and Mark were there, and Paul. Several of us were there together, and Brent and Janice. Everybody was there. You all were there. I don't need to tell the story. <laughs> and we had an exercise a prayer exercise where we would we prayed for a while and we, we sat quietly while someone read to us or told to us the story of Jesus and the disciples at the end of the Gospel of John. And we were encouraged to picture a scene, the scene of the boats coming to the shore and then Jesus and the disciples meeting, Peter and Jesus, and then Jesus and the disciples meeting and talking to one another. And this was... Um, a particular kind of prayer practice that has, was developed by the, in the Jesuit tradition. So we're, we're doing this, and I'm picturing it and, and praying. And I had the strangest experience in, in, in the way that I imagined it. I wasn't actually in the scene. I was just observing the scene. I wasn't one of the disciples. And I see Jesus and Peter talking to each other. And then I see the other disciples kind of gathered together over to the side, watching Jesus talk to Peter. And I had this very strong sense of injustice. Like, it it angered me that in this moment, Jesus was talking to Peter and forgetting about these other disciples. And so I'm, I'm watching it. I see them standing to the side, kind of talking to each other and watching Jesus and Peter. And I see Peter and Jesus talking intensely. And there's something in me that wants to interrupt Jesus and say, what about these people? And I lived with that actually for a long time, that sense of, one, why did I see that? Why did I picture that? And two, what is that about? And then, no need to get into the details, but it hit me. Jesus is talking to Peter for their sake. Because, this this is, I think, crucial, because A crucial step in the formation of a faithful life is coming to rejoice in what God is doing in someone else's life. That you will only be able to appreciate what God is doing for you when you care more about what God is doing for someone else. As long as... Go back to the garden. This this is where sin begins. Sin begins with Eve grasping for what she shouldn't grasp, wanting something for herself. But sin quickly progresses to Cain, envious of his brother for what his brother does receive. So that sin begins with me trying to make something for myself that isn't mine to have, but quickly becomes me resenting you because of you receiving something I want. 
And so when we, we see the work of God in the world and we see the blessing and the power of God in the world, we should remember that in part, that is God giving us the opportunity to mature, to see what he's doing elsewhere for other people and to rejoice in that rather than thank God, why aren't you doing it for me? That's the instinct of Cain. Why are you not doing this for me? And it leads to destroying that person. Not killing them literally all the time, but through gossip and slander and backbiting and hateful speech, we are destroying those that we think God is blessing when we are the ones who should be blessed. We're the older ones. We're we're the ones who should be receiving this blessing, and it's going to someone else. And so in part what's happening with Peter on the shore and with this man at the pool, is that God is giving everyone else around the opportunity to rejoice in the blessing that's coming to this person so that the sin of Cain can be taken from us, can be ripped out of us. That we can come to a place where we, we stand and applaud for what happens for someone else, even if it doesn't happen for us. But the other reason is because God is making Peter into the caregiver for all those other disciples. If you remember the way the story works, Jesus asked the man, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the command Jesus gives, me, gives him is, take care of those people. So if God singles him out, it's only because he singled him out to care for all those who seem to be singled away from Jesus. To, to, to be fenced out from what God is doing. Another way of putting this is, if God elects you, it's because he has elected you to care for those who seemed like they were not elect. If you're here today, drawn close to Jesus, it's because he loves someone you know. He is head over heels in love with somebody close to you, and he's asked you to collaborate with him to capture them with his love. You aren't special. I'm not special. They are. This, this, there's this challenging line Paul has to one of his churches where he says, consider others better than yourselves. Philippians 2. Consider others better than yourselves. That's not about us thinking ill of ourselves. It's not about self-hate or, or, or even any kind of lack of respect for ourselves. It's a recognition that there's something that comes alive in us only when we rejoice in what's going on in someone else's life. There's something about being human as God made us that only really is ignited, is only really brought to life when we are captured, not by what we're receiving or not receiving, but by what is being given to someone we love. And that's what makes us into a certain kind of people. I'm almost done. So the man, the man by the pool, the man who was sick for 38 years, is healed and he walks away. Which I love that about. I mean, I, I love that about the, the story in that it, he doesn't kneel at Jesus' feet. He doesn't start singing Amazing Grace. He doesn't get a cross tattoo. He just, <laughs> he just walks away. Because really, what are you going to do? I mean, it, it's... You've been sick for 38 years, and now you can walk? Okay, where do I go? And he goes to the temple, which I think is fascinating, that he goes to the temple. He has no family, apparently, and no friends. 
So he goes to the temple, and Jesus sees him there and says to the man something very strange. He says, do not keep on sinning or something worse will happen to you. Now, a lot of people have read into that statement that the man was sick in the first place because of sin, but I don't think that's true. And I don't think Jesus is saying some worse sickness will come on you if you are sinning. I think he means that sin will do something to you that is much worse than what had happened to your body. But what is the sin? The man's not doing anything. I mean, maybe he smoked a cigarette on the way to the temple. I don't know. But maybe listened to some rock and roll. But we don't, I mean, there's no description in the text about what he's doing. But Jesus says, do not keep on sinning or something worse will come upon you. And this is a little bit like Jesus, also in the Gospel of John, writing in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. And then so we can read into the story whatever we want to find. But here's, here's what I think it is. And I won't go into all the details of the argument as to why I think it is. But this is what I think it is. I think the point of the don't keep on sinning is not that the man is doing something like watching R-rated movies. It's that the man has forgotten the people he just spent 38 years with. That as soon as he's healed, he walks away. As soon as he has his life restored to him, he just brushes his hands off and steps onto a new life. And this, this is what I want to share with you. I think there are two kinds of Christians. There are Christians who go to the temple, and there are Christians who are the temple. This man went to the temple. But to go to the temple meant that he had to leave the people at the pool. He had to forget about all of those years with all of those people. And I don't blame him. I would have done the same thing. I mean, I, I, I do not blame him for taking some time off from the pool. And yet, I think that sin in us, sin in us is the desire to take the blessings of God and separate ourselves from the people who remain under the burden of brokenness of sin. That is sin. God, you've done good to me. Now I can keep a safe distance from all those who haven't met you yet, who don't know you yet, whose lives aren't in order yet. But we're called not to go to the temple, but to be the temple. That's what Jesus did. He was the temple. He went to the man at the pool. And that's exactly the burden that's on us. Become the temple. Embody the gospel. Embody the gospel not in these walls, not on this day, but every day, all the time, out there in the world. In the throwaway moments of our lives, when we are encountering people we don't even know their names, encountering them in ways that the grace of God can touch them. Not by giving them a chick track, don't do that. Do not do that. If you don't know what a chick track is, just do a cross yourself like this and pray you never find out, right? But carrying the grace of God into the world, 
right, to, to these places. And not all of us are called to go to places like this, the places where the, the, the most diseased and broken people are. But everybody around you is diseased and broken. Everybody is. You just don't know them well enough to, to see how, but I promise you, everybody around you is diseased and broken. And so be the temple. And I end with this image. In the epistle for the day, which is Revelation 20, 21 and 22, we read about the new Jerusalem. And we get this picture of a city that has two features that I think are especially astonishing. One is it's a city at the center of which is a throne, out of which flows a river. And out of, the throne, out of this river grow trees on either side that are for the healing of the nations. And the city has walls and gates. But what's striking is the gates are never shut. And in the text, we're told that the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city. The gates are never shut, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city. And the trees that are lining the street and are fed by the river have fruit that's for the healing of the nations. Now, what's astonishing about this, you can go back this afternoon and do it. If you read the book of Revelation up to that point in the, in the, in the book, which is the very end of chapter 21, every single reference in the book to kings of the earth and to the nations is as the enemies of God. Every single reference in the book, every time the kings of the earth are mentioned and every time the nations are mentioned, it's as the people who are against God. And they've been described in previous chapters as being completely obliterated. All the kings of the earth are dead and the nations are destroyed. And then suddenly we get a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city, and a river flowing with trees growing for the healing of the nations. Well, I thought the nations were dead. And the gates are never shut and the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city. And I think the point of the image is never forget our God is the God of the impossible. That the work we're doing, the work we are sharing, is not just about human beings taking care of each other. It is that. It is about us saying kind words and bandaging wounds and changing bed sheets. It is about all of that stuff. But it isn't just about that. It's also about the life of God in us flowing out of us and bringing healing to people who should not be able to be healed and bringing reconciliation for people who should not be able to be reconciled so that the nations who seem to be completely against God and destroyed are suddenly healed by the work of God and the kings of the earth who've been destroyed and alienated, alienated and destroyed come into the city of God. The gates are never shut. So as we become the temple, we have to remember this. It isn't just about our words and deeds. It isn't just about our presence. We are supposed to be humane. We are supposed to be compassionate. But what really matters is that when we are present, God is present. And what we are doing, God is doing. And he does the impossible. 
not only for that man in the pool, but for everybody around that pool and everybody in the city and everybody outside the city because he's all in all. Let me pray for you really quick. God, I pray that you will help us to be your temple, to be the body of Christ, to carry grace to the people we, we love and the people that we should love but haven't learned to love yet. God, help us to recognize that we do have responsibility to be there, to be present. To, we are our brother's keeper. But ultimately, this is about your work. This is about your grace and your power and your strength. God, I pray that you help us to yield to that calling. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.